serenity. We interrupted it in order to talk about thankfulness, gratitude, and appreciation. We talked about some studies that have shown the benefits that accrue to us when we stir up gratefulness within ourselves. We talked about how both ancients, the ancients and modern researchers as well have said that it is a trait that needs to be stirred up. And we saw that both ancients and modern researchers have told us that uh, if we do not stir it up, there are forces at work in the world around us that will assure that we will slip away from a posture of gratitude if we do not uh, stir up these practices. So we talked about some simple practices, as simple as list making, more habitual things like end-of-day journal keeping, and regular habits like setting a monthly calendar reminder to send a letter to someone who has blessed you in your life, a letter of appreciation once a month. Now, it's difficult to know which Sunday really is. Giving Sunday, is it the Sunday leading up to Thanksgiving, or is it this Sunday after Thanksgiving? And so, since I couldn't figure it out, I decided to use both of these Sundays to talk about thankfulness and gratitude, and I'm going to interrupt our lesson on inner tranquility and inner rest for one more week. And today, I want to reinforce what we talked about last week with a very simple and very ancient practice, and that is storytelling. Last week, I gave you a lot of content. Last week, I talked about reasons, and I talked about principles, and I talked about examples, and I encouraged you with practical applications to live thankfully, to live gratefully. And today, I simply want to tell you a story. Storytelling is an ancient art. It accesses a part of our humanity that reasons and principles can't get to. So without much commentary today, I'm just going to tell you a story. And it's a story that many of you already know. And so it isn't for the act of getting new content that I tell it to you. It's for the purpose of stirring up from within us something that is there and bringing it to the forefront of our heart and a forefront of our minds. I have made a practice with my son. I'm carpooling him now these days, so I have 20 minutes in the car with him. And so I created a file that I've transferred to my phone, and it's all the stories that I need to tell him as part of his man training. That's what we call it. And so I'll, I'll hand him my phone, and I'll say, go to, the, go to the man training file and tell me which story you want to hear today. And so he will actually even ask to hear some stories that he's already heard and that he already knows, sometimes because there's a different nuance that he picks up, but sometimes because all it does is bring something that is within us to the fore and brings it to the forefront of our minds. So that's what we're going to do. I'm hoping to tell you a story that has to do with thankfulness and bring that to the beginning of your mind. So here we go. This story is an ancient one. It was first told by a doctor who traveled with Jesus, who was eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. And it was a story that had enough meaning in it that it has stood the test of time. It has been told and retold by parents to their children, and it has been told and retold by ministers to spiritual communities for hundreds, perhaps even 2,000 years. It's the story of Luke. It's the story of the account of ten lepers. And I'm going to tell it to you in the way that I would imagine 
that Luke would tell it to us if he were here today. So, here's the story. We were heading with Jesus to Jerusalem, and it was a hot day, not like today. This day was dusty, and it was sweaty, and it was dirty. And our faces were streaked with a mixture of dust and water that put mud all over our faces. And we weren't even talking the way that we usually talked when we walked. It was just too hot. The only thing that you could hear in the stillness of the heat was the buzzing of bugs. And after some time walking along this way, we begin to hear a noise. Distant at first, but as we walked, it became closer and closer and closer. It sounded like voices, and eventually as we drew nearer, the voices began to articulate words. And the words were, unclean, unclean, unclean. Rounding a bend in the road, after a while of this, we saw them, ten of them standing off to the side of the road, waiting. They must have known we were coming. When they saw us, they stopped the shouting. It became clear that they had been waiting for Jesus. Now, we knew that they were lepers. We knew so because of the shouting, unclean, unclean. But the look about them was very clear as well. They had rags about their heads, they wore tattered clothing. They had strips of cloth wrapping their feet. It was the uniform worn by lepers. Now, you don't have lepers in your community as we did back then, so you wouldn't know this, but they had to wear this uniform, partly because they couldn't get any better, but partly to set them apart so that we wouldn't get too close. No, there was no mistaking it. These were lepers. Lonely and hungry and wounded and bruised. Bodies as tattered as their clothes. So I stopped. We all did. I didn't want to get any closer. I don't think any of us wanted to get any closer. Now, you probably don't know how bad leprosy can be but it does horrible things to humans. Once you have it, there's no medicine, no cure. It just slowly began to eat away at your entire body one piece at a time. And the worst part, it was easy to catch. It was such a serious thing that the priests insisted that everyone who had even a minor skin blemish had to report to them. And when they did, they had to go through a thorough examination. If they had white bumps on their skin or red blotches on their skin or any discolored hair on their skin, it would be pronounced over them that they had become unclean. And when that diagnosis was pronounced, it was a horrible, horrible thing. And they had to go away. For seven days, they had to go away. They had to go outside of the community, away from their friends, away from their family, away from their loved ones. The priests wanted to be sure that no one else in the community was endangered. Now, if the person was lucky, 
When they came back after seven days, the problem would be gone. And they could rejoin the community, rejoin their family. But if they were unlucky, and it really was leprosy, forever they had to be away from their family. Forever they had to be away from their friends. Forever they had to be away from their work. Forever they had to be away from their livelihood. Forever unclean. Forever alone. Now, none of us could imagine what those seven days must have felt like if the person was pronounced unclean, wondering if they would live their lives ever again with their family members. But we all understood that it wouldn't be fair to the rest of us if they stayed. But still, it was hard not to be petrified at the prospect because leprosy isn't good. It is not good at all. It's not good for the people who catch it. It's even worse for the community around that has to go through the process. No, in those days, leprosy was not good, not good at all. And those unlucky ten that we saw on the road that day, forever unable to be with their people, forever unable to bounce their children on their knees, forever unable to hug their wives or to hug their husbands, It was just so hard to think about. We did what most people would do. We just stopped in our tracks. Because there, in those ten, we were facing our own boogeymen, our primal monsters, our visceral fears, the thing that would be the hardest for us to face, the loss of that which is most precious to us, loving them, being loved in return, having the potential to be taken from us. And so we were standing looking at them and seeing the specter of a lost life, having no one to love except at a distance, having no one to hold, having no one to cherish, having to yell from afar to the ones that we loved the most. And we had seen it. We knew what happened. At first, the loved ones would come to see us, but eventually most would stop coming. We knew that no one would want to look at us once we caught the disease, that no one would want to have anything to do with us once we caught the disease, that no one would hug us ever again, that no one would kiss us ever again, that no one would touch us ever again. So we stopped in our tracks. We stopped in our tracks immobilized by the prospect of watching the withering disease happened to us. And we stopped at the prospect of the waiting. The waiting to see if the disease would spread and when it would spread. Waiting to see when it would take our fingers and when it would take our toes. When it would destroy our mouths. When it would destroy our noses. We stopped in our tracks imagining a death from starvation imagining a death from infection and imagining the waiting and the hoping against hope and the trying to maintain hope in the face of an almost certain inevitability, hoping that the sores would clear up and hoping that we might be the one in a million who was able to hear the priest say over us, you are clean. 
So we stopped. We stopped to be careful. We stopped in our own horror. We stopped in as our own imaginations began to sink in. We stopped to be careful. But we also wondered what Jesus would do. Because Jesus walked a different path than anyone we'd ever known. And we had seen him once before in a situation like this, when against all common sense, when against all the imaginations that we had just gone through, we saw him once touch a leper. And I have to say, it was deeply frightening. It was very frightening. This guy came up to Jesus, and he begged him to be healed. And Jesus touched him. He actually touched him. And the man was healed. It was amazing. Now these ten, they must have heard the same story because they were waiting for us on the side of the road. They were waiting for us, but they were waiting for Jesus. And as soon as they saw Jesus, they began to shout at the top of their lungs, Jesus, have pity on us. They yelled it at the top of their lungs. Jesus, have pity upon us. Jesus, heal us. And they kept it up, and they kept it up. And sure enough, Jesus stopped. He didn't stay much. He didn't even do much. He just pointed his hand for them, and he said, go, show yourself to the priest. And they did. Off the hill, off down the hill, they begin to run. Now afterwards, I was thinking what they must have thought as they were running. I can imagine them asking themselves, I wonder what it means. I wonder if we're healed. I wonder what he means by go show ourselves to the priests. I know what I think it could mean. I hope it means that. I think it means that. I've heard the story. This could be fantastic. This could be wonderful. But wait, wait. What if we should have had him touch us like he did with the other leper? I wonder if I should just go back and ask him to touch me to be sure. Oh, but he told me to go show myself to the priest. Oh, I hope, oh, I hope. And we could imagine what was going through the minds of the ten as they began to race down the hill toward the village. The hope of the restoration of a family, of a life, of children. Now, we had been with Jesus. We knew how these things worked. We knew that if he said for them to go to the village, that they were healed. And we were right. But they, in the midst of their celebration, there had to be some fear. What does it mean? Hope that went against hope. Now, later on, the details did filter back to us. As they were going down the hill to the village, as we knew would be the case, their sores begin to dry up and their blemishes begin to disappear and they began to feel stronger and they began to feel more energetic and when they rounded the last turn toward the village they could see their own bodies and they could see one another's bodies that they were clean again now you living in this era when leprosy is no longer a large threat, you can't imagine how incredible this was for them. Every step that they took was a step closer to being whole. Every step that they took 
was a step closer to, again, playing with their children, closer to making love to their wives, a step closer to working in the fields and in the stables with their brothers and with their friends. But a funny thing happened that day. What I know about the guys running down the hill, I learned secondhand after the fact. But what I'll tell you now, I saw firsthand. About 15 minutes after the lepers began running down the hill, one of them started back up the hill toward us. Before he even made it to the priest, before he even heard the diagnosis, he came back up the hill toward us. We could tell something had happened even before he got to us. His walk had changed. What had previously been a shuffle now became a stride, and he was laughing. And he was laughing, and then his ears, his eyes would tear up, and then he would start laughing again. And when he got close enough that he could single Jesus out among us, he ran over and he threw himself at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him again and again and again and again. And he thanked him. And he thanked him, and he thanked him. It was like there was a geyser of gratitude that couldn't be contained coming from within him. It just kept erupting again, and then a pause, and then again. And as he stood up, he embraced Jesus, and he laughed again. And he cried some more, and he laughed again. And he thanked him, and he thanked him, and he thanked him. Now, there was a moment of strangeness. Now, all ten had been cured of leprosy. Jesus said so, and we heard it to be the case later on. But this one man, this one man who erupted in gratitude, he seemed to experience something else, something even more than the healing of his leprosy. The ones who came back to us and the one who thanked Jesus had something even deeper happen within him. Yes, he was cured, but more than that, he was made whole. And a deep, deep, deep dimension of his soul, he was made whole. Now, I don't know if it was the gratitude that made him whole, or if the thing that made him whole also made him grateful. But I saw something happen to this man. I was there. I saw it. Now, the others saw the same thing. And we talked about it. We talked about it a lot. And what we came to is this. I think Jesus, by highlighting this man's gratitude as apart from his fellows, was trying to show us something, trying to teach us yet again something. And it was something about the significance of gratitude. He was teaching us about how important it is for the soul to be thankful. He was saying something along the lines that a healthy body is only part of health, that there's something in our souls that also needs to be healthy, something in our souls that also needs to be healed, and that that thankfulness is part of the healing process. Thankfulness somehow heals what ails our souls. Now, I know for me, it made me wonder, what if I had done What if I had experienced what the ten had experienced? What would I have done if I had been one of the ten? 
if I had received the pardon that they had received, if I had the new lease on life that they had, if I had been given a clean bill of health as they had been given, if I had a new life, a new future opened before me that day, would I have responded as the one did or would I have responded as the nine did? There was a lot going on that day. Priests to see, families to tell, parties to hold. And there's a good chance that I might have been so distracted by the life that needed to be lived that day that it might never have occurred to me to set aside the time and the space necessary to express gratitude. It might never have occurred to me to stop in my tracks and to express thankfulness and gratitude in that moment. I might have been so overjoyed that I would have rushed right back to my family, right back to the normalness of my life, and never even considered the importance of expressing gratitude. And seeing what I saw on the face of that man that day, if I had responded as the nine did, I know I would have been impoverished for my oversight. I would have been the worse for my failure to see the world thankfully. I know that my omission on that day would have cost me. It would have been deeply costly. So I walked away from that day having seen with my own eyes what I had been taught by the ancients that it is imperative that I stir up within myself the practices and the habits of thankfulness and gratitude. That it is imperative if I would live the life that Jesus modeled for us, that I must incline myself to gratitude and thankfulness. That I must develop the new thought patterns, the new routines that will make me live gratefully and live thankfully. And I'm telling you of my experience so that you too can stir up that posture of thankfulness within yourself and be whole and be free and be truly alive and be grateful. So Lord, our lives afford us so much. There is love to give and there is love to receive. There are friendships to nurture and to savor. There is food to eat. There is air to breathe. There is fresh water to drink. There are opportunities to express our truest selves. There are opportunities to see inner truth. And for these and many other countless blessings, there are never enough words to adequately express our thanksgiving. That we simply exist, that we are instead of not being. We can never adequately thank you that we exist instead of not existing. So, Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to awaken our hearts and our spirits from slumber and from atrophy to restore the possibility of dancing with the divine 
that you would whisper to our souls from the realm of incomprehensibility some glimpse of goodness and truth and life that would stir within us a life of gratefulness and of thankfulness. Divine Spirit, Spirit of all that is, Spirit of the universe, Spirit of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We stand before you with a posture of thankfulness now. But also, Lord, we come and ask that you would shape within us an attitude of gratefulness in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.